Welcome to A History of Financial Markets. My name is Ryan Henderson. I am here with Brett Schaefer. This is Episode 5, Season 1, Episode 5. And on this show, we are getting into the panic, panic of 1907. So uh, we're finally introduced to it. Last show, we sort of talked about what was happening beforehand, but things are going to start heating up. So we'll start in September of 1907 and talk about some of the key figures who started this I guess you could call it a snowball of illiquidity. Do you want to give some context? Yeah, so before we get started, uh, I just want to talk about who's impacted by the panic and who is not. So right now in 1907, the average American workers are only making an estimated $200 to $400 a year. So these people, the majority of Americans, are not in the market. So the panic, it's affecting the stock market, and at this time, it's mainly the super rich or upper middle class potentially. Uh, but this panic also affected the banking system, which many, many, many more Americans use. So that can kind of impact the economy as a whole. Um, while you know, the stock market is a relative value of what the economy is, at this point in time, it's a lot smaller. Um, it's only with, you know, most people don't even know what's going on. I mean, it's just not even impacting their day-to-day lives. But if there's run on the banks, that is impacting their day-to-day lives. Uh, so with that being said, we'll get started with some of the big names. Uh, we're probably going to cover, we're going to start in September, go through some of the stories that are going to impact it, and then we'll hit uh, October 21st or something like that, right before we end here. But yeah, the big names are the Heinz brothers and others. There's also Charles Wyman Morse. These ones are uh, some of the risk riskier, as you call them, investors and business people that kind of uh, they may have been taking on too much risk. But to get started, the first big name is Fritz Augustus Hines. He is described as, quote, the torso of a Yale halfback, muscles of steel, and a face of ivory whiteness. You inspired by this guy? Yeah. He's an intimidating Low figure. Man. Gritty. Gritty. Very gritty. Uh, he sought fame in the copper mines of Montana. So he's out there on the western frontier. And his mining interests were consolidated into the United Copper Company in 1902, and they were valued at $80 million. So really, he's doing quite well. I mean, he's insanely wealthy from all of this. And then Hines was also involved in a lawsuit with Standard Oil's Amalgamated Copper. And Amalgamated Copper ended up buying out his interests for $12 million in 1906. So he has... I assuming I'm assuming at the time are mostly liquid assets, just twelve million bucks. That's just that's a lot of money at the time, and he had, yeah. he decided to do a lot with it. So through his relationship with Charles Morse, who we'll introduce later, uh, he became president of the Mercantile National Bank in 1907. And then Heinz's brothers Otto and Arthur owned a brokerage firm that had major ties to to United Copper. So United Copper was the company owned by Augustus or Fritz, excuse me, and his brothers, Otto and Arthur, had a brokerage firm that obviously invested a lot of money in United Copper, excuse me. So that was a big uh, family tie. Yeah. Does that all make sense so far? Yeah, I'm kind of following along. Who was Charles Morse? Yeah, so from Wikipedia, Charles De Wyman Morse uh, was born October 21st, 1856, and died January 12th, 1933, so lived a long time. And he was an American businessman and speculator who committed numerous frauds and engaged in corrupt business practices. That was that's his first byline there. So that's what he's known tough. for. Yeah, Wikipedia tough. did not do him any favors. Um, at one time, he controlled 13 banks in America, and he was known as the quote "Ice King" 
early in his career out of New York City because through the Tammany Hall corruption, he established a local monopoly on New York's ice business. That's kind of sweet. The Ice King? Yeah. I don't, that's kind of a cool name. Cool nickname to have. The Ice King? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, and then he, after that, bought several shipping companies and then moved into high finance where he was in around 1907. Um, he organized the Consolidated Ice Company in 1897 and merged it with many other businesses in 1899 to form the American Ice Company. Like we've heard before, during this time period, people were basically saying, all right, we got an industry. Why don't we just combine everything and yeah, it'll just be better? Well, so it's a monopoly. Everything's better. He m- controlled all of the ice in New yeah, York City. So I'll explain what this means because right now we Not know, like ice vehicles. Like yeah, literal ice. <laughs> yeah. So I like I'm talking about frozen stuff. Uh, ice now you get them from refrigerators. The refrigeration refrigeration has been invented uh, at this time period in 2021. But back then, refrigeration was in the really nascent stages. No one really had it. Uh, so they would actually cut it out from frozen rivers. So they'd probably go upstate in New York, and they would, I imagine them taking a saw, but I assume it's more mechanical than this, and cutting out chunks of ice and bringing it to the city uh, oh. for the rich people. So that's, you know, they're performing a service. You can't really do that on your own. Uh, and they had a virtual monopoly on ice in New York. Um, so he's doing well, but again, it was through corruption that he got this through Tammany Hall. So don't think that it was anything impressive on his part he was kind of just taking advantage of people he knew Uh, but back to the story as money tightened in the fall of 1907 the Heinz brothers began purchasing company stock on margin at 20 different brokerages on Wall Street now you might be thinking well that's a little bit risky it was and on October 9th 1907 Otto Hines audited the United Company copper shares and noticed that there were 450,000 shares trading which was 25,000 above of what were known to be in existence this is a problem yeah so describe that like how did that happen they mu- well I think they they really didn't know how it happened because they didn't want to make that mistake on purpose, or maybe someone did. And they were don't people really know. making up shares? Yeah, so they they have allocated shares, and there's a price to the share. Uh, you know, each share, right? And people think they have ownership in this company, but in reality, there's actually more shares outstanding. So some people have illegitimate claims on mm-hmm. the United Copper shares. This could get really dicey because you know there could be big conflicts of people thinking who has legitimate shares. Yeah. Whether there actually should be 475,000 shares outstanding. So big problem for them. And uh, what they decided to do is they wanted to corner the market logically uh, for shares as one does. That's when the answer to everything. Yeah. Uh, but things ended up getting dicey. So Gross and Kleber, who was a brokerage house, they executed an order for United Copper shares for Heinz. But Otto refused to pay them. Cost the firm $300,000, and then Otto Hines and the company were suspended from the exchange for not meeting financial obligations. So they were, uh, yeah, obviously they, the people weren't happy. The powers that be were not happy on Wall Street. Um, I can't yeah. believe you get, how do you get shares and not pay for them? Um, they they sense. were, um, from what I've read in the book, The Panic of 1907, the Hines brothers, they uh, may have been a little bit immoral. You might describe them in mon- modern terms as being a couple of scumbags. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So right. let's talk banking system. Yes. So what was that like at this point? Yeah. So we've covered it a little bit, but we, we just want to go over it again because to show how complicated things are or were at the time and how it's going to impact this panic because – I mean, we've kind of gone through some of what we went through, the trusts a little bit, how they fit into it. But this is going to be the broader stuff, Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit of history uh, before we get back to our timeline. So unlike European countries, the United States did not have a central bank to manage its money supply, um, or at least they didn't at the time. Since Andrew Jackson withdrew the charter for the Bank of the United States in 1837, the political sentiment was a distrust of banking institutions. A lot of people really distrusted high finance. Um, And in 1907, there were three types of banks that people could run. So there were state banks were chartered by state legislators, national banks that could receive federal deposits and issue currency, you know, not from the Fed, you know, because people think of the Fed as like the national treasury, but the treasury is the, you know, place that is issuing the currency. And that was still around in 1907. And there was also private banks like J.P. Morgan, Kuhn and Loeb, those are still around today in similar formats. You know, J.P. Morgan does very similar things just on a modern level. Uh, and then there was trust companies, and we've discussed them before, but they were essentially bank-like for wealthy people, but they paid higher interest rates. So similar to maybe a mutual fund or something like that. You know what I mean? Kind of a fund structure. Try to get a higher rate of return. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Everything. Yeah, I mean. It- Sounds a little messed up that the uh, only the rich people had access to these trust companies, but it sounds mm-hmm. like it kind of ended up biting them in the ass in a little bit. <laughs> it did for some of these. Yes, we'll get to that. Uh, but it's no different than today. I mean, today it's a little more democratized, but there's still accredited investor rules that we have some gripes with. A lot of people have that as well. Yeah. Uh, but let's get to why the banks kind of were in I mean, someone might explain this to me, and it might make sense from a reserve standpoint, but I'm going to read how these things worked or could work or how a lot of banks banks did business. I'm going to see if people think that this makes sense or is any sort of like uh, risk-averse strategy. So banks had to hold 15% of their deposits in reserve, but 40% of these reserves had to be in cash, but the other 60% could be put on deposit at reserve city banks. So they transfer the reserves to city banks that then could put some of their reserves on deposit at major money centers like New York. <laughs> However, the banks in New York put their deposits in the securities market, specifically underwriting things like railroad stocks. So suffice to say, when the financial markets are in turmoil, people got worried about their deposits because that's the connection. Between... In the end, they're all in stocks. Yes, which... <laughs> Not um, I, I you better be getting a high interest rate on that. That feels yeah, I don't know the interconnectedness, crazy. the illiquidity was insane. Um, after this, we'll probably. I mean, do you have any questions on that? Like, seem it's a little confusing, no, it makes but sense, but it's mind blowing that. I mean, was this publicized? Because yeah, I mean, would but, you hold cash reserves? I mean, your cash reserves were stocks. Yeah, That's so I cash mean, reserve. this isn't like – so banks can do that. This is how they make money. You know, they bring in stuff and they loan it out. But typically, it's not at this extreme of a level. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where like today – I mean, I don't know. Sometimes banks lever up way too much. I mean, we is saw that 15, with the great financial crisis, but – It's only 15% of the deposits in reserve. Isn't that low? That uh, I am or not a banking expert. Now? If you're a banking expert, you might be thinking that's normal. Uh, I don't know if it's normal, but it feels low. Because if you get a 15% run on the bank, 
yeah. for withdrawals. I mean, that's a run on the bank, and uh, especially when only six percent of it had to be in cash. Mm-hmm. And there's no FDIC insurance uh, at the time, so people weren't even there was no insurance around their deposits. That's kind of a big difference. Where today, if things get loaned out, it's backed by, you know, the federal government can come in and save you. But the yeah, I mean. It was not as structured, I guess, back then, as you can probably tell. Uh, no. I don't know what I don't know what they were thinking along the lines, except that you know it's a way to get higher interest rates is to loan out this money to other people and then get money from them. Uh, but that only works if money is getting deposited and if stuff starts getting withdrawn, that can affect a lot of people's financial assets. Uh, so you think we should take a break here before we pick it back on the timeline? Yeah, because then we're going day by day. It gets uh, yeah, see, into crunch time. So. It, the next, This part of the second half will be crunch time. Next episode will be crunch time. We'll introduce JP Morgan then. But yes, let's take a break and then we'll come back and talk about it. Okay, welcome back in. We are now going to change up the structure a little bit. So our timeline is getting compressed, which means... Uh, Things Every are day counts. Um, so we're going to start dedicating sections to individual days. We're starting with October 17th, 1907. You want to kick things off? Yeah. So what kicked things off, at least the big kickoff, I guess, was the State Savings Bank in Butte, Montana. It announced insolvency, and it was a correspondent bank with the Mercantile National Bank in New York. And if we remember above... Um, Augustus Hines was the president of the Mercantile National Bank. So that's that connection to these big, uh, I don't want to call them the, the fat cats, but uh, the, the whatever, you know, the Wall mm-hmm. Street people. Uh, and then they were using, so, okay, so he's at Mercantile National Bank. The state saving banks in Utah uh, had that correspondence with that, you know, the connection with the Mercantile National Bank. Not and Utah, they held, Montana. Uh yeah, Montana, excuse me. And they held United Company, Copper Company stock as collateral <laughs> to their reserves. That was not good. So Augustus Hines had to, quote, voluntarily resign as president of the Mercantile Bank of New York. He would not take this lightly. We'll see that on the next day. And then on October 19th, Mercantile reportedly only had $1.7 million in cash balances. And at the rate it was losing deposits, it would be out of money in 10 days. Now, when this went public... If you held money at that place, you were probably pretty nervous, right? I mean, wouldn't yeah. you? It, it hates you know you hate to start the run on the bank, but if you think that they're ten days away from insolvency, you yeah, want your money. Yeah, that's the problem though. Is then that insolvency comes a little faster because everyone mm-hmm. wants. Out. I mean, that's that's the nature of a run on the banks, right? Yep, yep. And then the bank itself was getting help and assurance from the New York Clearinghouse, so this made up any deficit of any debits that Mercantile was unable to pay. So. The clearinghouses, you know, they help, as they say in the name, clear trades, you know, get everything debited and credited and whoever owns whatever at the end of a day or, you know, withdraws and deposits, things like that. And then meanwhile, while this was happening with the New York clearinghouse, they're trying to solve the run on the Mercantile National Bank. Augustus Hines, who was, you know, the ex-president of the bank at this time, was issuing statements from his residence at the Waldorf Hotel. I wonder if that's still a thing. I, I didn't check. Uh, which was across the street from Otto Hines and Company and the United Copper Company. And he was making repeated denials that the clearinghouse was assisting his bank. He said, quote, I have not sold a share of my stock and I am still in control of the mercantile bank. <laughs> uh, do I need to say it? Does he have a, 
diamond hands. But uh, <laughs> he, uh, to finish the quote, the whole miserable situation is the result of action of the clearinghouse committee. Instead of coming out with a statement saying that the bank was entirely solvent, they made a lot of remarks about the impairment of surplus and started a run on the bank in hope of attracting the deposits to their institutions. So he's blaming the clearinghouse. I think that was pretty bold words because we know from the reading of the the history that what actually happened, I mean, it, it was his fault. But If they're focused on the accuser and not the accusations, <laughs> it's usually a red flag. That's true. That's true. That's a good point. It's funny that, I mean... It's, We've it's, seen some of this recently, and this was happening hundreds, uh, hundred more ago. than 100 years ago. Yeah, it really shows that Wall Street has not changed. It's just the tech has changed. Um, October 21st, we'll pick things back up. The Wall Street Journal, who um, they always have the quotes. I mean, I guess, you know, people are, I don't know. They get a bad rap from all these history things of the, you know, the headlines. Things are going well, but in reality, they're about to go to shit. Uh, but the, the Wall Street Journal said on October 21st, the action of the clearinghouse on Saturday and Sunday had eliminated all elements of danger from the banking situation. Again, not choice words. Choice <laughs> words there. Augustus Hines and Charles W. Morse were forced to resign from all their leadership positions and were basically ejected from the financial system. So like J.P. Morgan and whatever, they just blackballed them. They were like, it's kind of, it feels almost like uh, the mob, you know, where they're like, we're kicking you to the street. It's funny that J.P. Morgan just runs the whole thing. Yeah. And, uh, okay, so now we've seen what the mercantile bank kind of go down because of this Montana bank. And who's next? Who's next? Yeah. So this is the Knickerbocker Trust Company. They are... Uh, they're going to be at the center of this for a while. So they were founded in 1884 by Fred Eldridge, who was a classmate of J. Pierpont Morgan. And by 1907, the trust had $65 million in deposits, making it the third largest in New York City. So they're a big institution at the time. Think of it like, I mean, it's not a dr- apples to apples, but think of it like a giant mutual fund. I mean, I don't want to say anything because uh, I think of it like something like uh, ARK Invest or something like that. Someone who has, and I'm not saying any positive or negative about ARK Invest, but like something like that who's a big fund. They have a lot of influence and they're pretty illiquid. Yeah, something like like that. Uh, So the quote here, I did not write down who the quote was. I assume it's from the Panic in 1907 book, which if you're fascinated about this, has like a 300-page thing that covers the whole story. It said, quote, outwardly and according to its balance sheet, the trust company was flourishing. But people did not know, not even their board of directors, that the president of the Knickerbocker Trust, Charles T. Barney, had connections to Charles Morse and Augustus Hines. So Mm. not good. So on Monday, October 21st, Charles T. Barney resigned from the trust and the bank's clearinghouse announced it would no longer serve the company. Now, this is probably sparking panic among the depositors. You yeah. see the clearinghouse, you know, they're restricting everyone's liquidity here. Uh, you know, the panic, you can see the cracks starting to show. And then Charles T. Barney, like everyone else during this time, uh, apparently just decided to try to yell and blame everyone else. He said, quote, there is not the slightest truth in any report that I was forced out of the company by the clearinghouse commission or by the action of the Bank of Commerce. This is a boldface lie. Yeah, the... <laughs> I mean, all these every everyone we've studied so far is just swallowing their pride when they're ousted. Yeah, like nope, uh, that was that's not true at all. And I run I, the company still. Yeah, and from an investment perspective, 
I mean, we're not going to try to tie it to a big analogy here, but if you're looking at a company now and management who is clearly biased and is saying stuff, you have to think what are their incentives because in this situation, Charles Barney's incentive is not to say it was entirely my fault. I took on too much risk. You know, yeah. like he, I mean, it might just be tied to ego in this case. Yes, but there's there's ego, there's all that stuff. So when it's just when management is saying stuff, when people that have been ousted of places are saying stuff, you have to really ask: Are they telling the truth? Um, but yeah, that's the big events here. I guess to close things out during these events, J. Pierpont Morgan, uh, who was 70 years of age at the time, was in Richmond, Virginia, attending the triannual. Episcopal convention, as one Episcopal. does. Episcopal. Episcopal. I don't know. I, I, I'm really bad at All religious right, stuff. Uh, Episcopal. Hopefully, I'm saying that right. Uh, you know, as one does, he, attending that convention was sounds like a total hoot. Uh, he couldn't leave though, because if he left, people said, and he kind of thought this, that if he went back to New York City before the convention ended, it would arouse suspicion that things were falling apart in New York City. So if he like, it was kind of like. Uh, uh, I guess another connection to the great financial crisis when like, you know, Bernanke, Paulson and uh, gosh, I'm forgetting the other guy that runs the Fed of oh. New York City. Uh, I'm forgetting the younger, the younger Tim? guy. Is it t- no. Uh, Nick? I don't know. You know no, who I'm talking about. But yeah. it's like when they would show up at places, they'd be like, whoa. Things the are shorter, happening. shorter, younger guy. Yeah, or when Buffett, which or Warren Buffett, would show up at some place that's you know has rumors of delinquency. Sign. It's it's definitely a bad sign. And then on October 1907, he did end up returning. So right around the time of the Charles D. Barney stuff, and he returned to his library on Madison Avenue, where the coming rescue mission would be discussed. And that's what we're going to be talking about on episode six. Okay, so that's going to do it for episode five. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, we got to say, uh, oh, if we got anything yeah. wrong? If we have anything wrong, feel free to reach out to us uh, either through email. It'll be in the show notes or uh, hit us up on Twitter, uh, yeah, CCM Ryan, CCM Brett. Uh, and we'd love to get some clarifications if we're messing anything up. But thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next episode.